I have a confession to make. This is not a, a bit or a shtick. It's an embarrassing confession, but it is the truth. There are many times when I am sitting at church on Sundays and I hear the word being preached, but I think about how beautifully the gospel is interwoven throughout the scriptures rather than treasuring the beauty of the gospel itself. Like there are times when I'm sitting on the pew and listening to the sermon and I think about how the gospel is being drawn from the text rather than praying for the gospel to then be poured into my heart. And in preparing the sermon, I was convicted that I sometimes get more excited about the gospel on an intellectual level rather than being profoundly passionate about the gospel itself. Would this not be the case for any of you this morning? Please open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We're in the Minor Prophets, Jonah chapter 3. This morning, we are going to read about one of the greatest, if not the greatest, revivals in the history of the world in terms of scale, about how God causes a major metropolitan city that rejected God outright, that took pride in their sin, to then cry out to God in repentance, ultimately bringing 120,000 souls to salvation. Please follow along as I read Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. By the way, I'm not sure what a three days' journey in breadth means. Uh, It could be a hyperbole that the city was so big that it took three days to walk through it or around it. Could be that it took effectively three days to clear their equivalent of customs. Or it could be dozens of other things that commentators don't seem to really fully align on. But what we do know is that the author was trying to qualify how big this city was by mentioning three days' journey in breadth. Let's continue. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So verse 5 is probably a summary of what happened, right? It's an overview of the event itself. And then verses 6 through 9 is a more detailed account of what happened. So chronologically, verses 6 through 9 happens first, and then verse 5 would be the end result. So verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he, ish- and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may relent, may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do them, and he did not do it. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that we can even come to you to pray. We thank you for your scripture, for you to allow us to know you. And God, as we learn a little bit more about you this morning, would you open up our hearts to receive the gospel of your truth, to receive the good news of your truth? God, that through the folly of what I preach, that you would save those 
to believe. And God, I just ask that you would allow us to focus and pay attention to those, uh, to that which you want us to learn this morning. Would you do a work in us and would the word uh, not fall on deaf ears and deaf hearts, but would it be fruitful and would your will be done? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Old Testament, in some ways, uh, can be tens of thousands of verses of Israel's wickedness and love for their own sin, and then God constantly pursuing them over and over and over again, despite their rejection of him. But this morning, we have 10 verses, 10 verses that describe how God turns an entire city away from their love of sin, 10 verses that tell us at least four things about the love of God. God's love, by the way, just to make sure you understand, is infinitely more than just four things. God's love is certainly more than 10 verses. But today, this morning, with the time that we have today, we're going to examine four things about the love of God in 10 verses. And they are that God's love is without wavering, it is intelligible, it is neutralizing, and it is sympathetic. So point number one, God's love is without wavering. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Most of you know the story well. Jonah is a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel. He's most well known for being fish food. Essentially, God calls him to go to Nineveh, which is enemy territory, to preach to the people that God is going to judge them for all of their sins. Because God is the creator of the universe, and God created man. And this world in which we live is his domain. God has the authority to do anything and everything that he wants. But Jonah doesn't want to deliver this message. He hates the enemies. And he's afraid that such a message would wake the Ninevites up and cause them to repent, which then would cause God to forgive them. So he runs away in the opposite direction from Nineveh. God comes to disrupt his reality and his comfort zone, so he rebels. He gets on a boat to run away, but then God sends a storm to stop him. The storm is so strong that it causes expert sailors who are on board the ship with him to panic for their lives. But instead of Jonah repenting, we see him descend into deeper and deeper unrepentance. And the story culminates in Jonah's convincing the sailors to throw him off the boat so that the storm would stop. And so reluctantly, they throw him off. And the story should have ended here, right? Because God could have let Jonah drown. At this point, Jonah was useless. He was called to do one thing and he didn't do it. But God didn't ignore him. He got involved. He stopped Jonah from continuing in sin. So instead of leaving Jonah for dead, God sends a fish to swallow Jonah whole. Instead of allowing Jonah to drown immediately and be sentenced to death, God arrests Jonah and sentences him in the prison of the belly of the fish. Fish food. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah repents. Then instead of sentencing, uh, Jonah repents. And then instead of sentencing Jonah to death, God paroles Jonah as, and has him released out onto the shore. And the story should have ended many times. When the sailors threw Jonah overboard, Jonah should have died. God didn't have to save Jonah from drowning. After being swallowed, Jonah should have died. God didn't have to save Jonah from the belly of a fish. But here we are, chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This is the second act, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This juxtaposition is intentional. Because God didn't just save Jonah, he called him right back to where he was supposed to be in the first place, Nineveh. God could have raised up another prophet more willing to go. But God shows his unwavering love to Jonah by sending Jonah. Jonah ran from God. Jonah would have rather died at the hands of the sailors than to repent. But God was, God was not ashamed to use Jonah. See, it's amazing enough for God to spare Jonah's life, but God also restores him to be a prophet to the same people. And this is where we see that God's love is without wavering. It never stops. It doesn't change course. It does not deviate from the plan. God never changed his plan. Jonah faced a hurricane. Jonah lived in the belly of the fish for half a week. Jonah went through life-changing experiences in that week. It was a pretty rough week. But ultimately, when all was said and done, God never deviated from his plan. God sends Jonah to preach to the Ninevites. That was always the plan. And this is not the only time that God does this. He did it with Moses. Moses tried to lead a revolution by killing an Egyptian, only to have it backfire on him. Acts chapter 7, verse 25. He, speaking of Moses, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And so Moses had to become a fugitive and run away. But when it was the right time, the person that God chose was Moses. He didn't choose someone else after Moses messed up and embarrassed himself. He did not change his plans. And you know the story. God sends embarrassed and reluctant Moses to rescue the Israelite slaves out of the kingdom of Egypt. He did this with King David. God says of David that he is a man after his own heart. But David impregnates the wife of one of his most loyal officers in the army. He attempts to deceive this officer to cover up the pregnancy. And then when that fails, David orders to have the officer killed so nobody but David and the woman would know about the affair. And yet, after this twisted saga is exposed, God keeps David on the royal throne of Israel. He uses David to carry out his judgment against other nations. He keeps David on the throne and uses his bloodline to bring about an eternal king in Jesus. He did this with King Manasseh, who killed the innocent and worshipped idols, who sacrificed his own child to those idols. God first sent prophets, and when that didn't work, God used the Assyrian army to capture him. And when he finally repented, he returned to Judah and fortified its defenses. And it is also through Manasseh's bloodline that Jesus, the Savior of the world, would be born. He did this with Peter. Jesus announces to his disciples that he will be delivered up to death. Peter responds, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then within moments after Jesus is arrested, Peter denies even knowing about Jesus three consecutive times in short order. And yet, in just a few short weeks thereafter, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to fill Peter's lungs to deliver a sermon that leads to a powerful multinational revival in Acts chapter 2. God does not deviate from his plans. In fact, God uses our failures to deliver his plans, to show the world that his love is without wavering. And in one sense, for you, if you feel like you are so unusable, so unqualified to be used by God, you're wrong. I'm speaking to those who have given their lives to Christ. 
because some of you need to be reminded of this. Some of you are sitting here this morning thinking that you've unqualified yourself to serve God. You think that maybe because you've done this or because you've done that, that God just cannot trust you. Maybe you've really hurt someone in the past and you've scarred them and there's not enough words to express how sorry you are now. Maybe you've gotten an abortion. Maybe you're bad at relationships. Maybe you've just done something that you cannot shake off and it keeps coming back into your conscience, scratching, clawing your heart. Or maybe it's something that you didn't even do. Maybe it's something that you haven't done like passionately pray to the Lord and commune with God in such a long time that trying to do it now almost feels awkward and feels like God has abandoned you. Let me be clear. I want to tell you that if you've repented, you need to wipe your tears. You need to clear your eyes. And you need to see that God's love is unwavering. I'm not telling you to think less of your sin. Let's be clear. They are grievous, they are evil, and you must, not should, must be broken over your sin. But I'm telling you to think that much more of God. I'm telling you to see that God's love is greater than you can imagine. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. And I'm telling you that if your eyes are on yourself, you will only find yourself with flaws and blemishes and disappointment. But if you turn your eyes to God's love, you will find that he is a fountain that he delights to shower on his children. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Because for some of us here, including myself, especially myself, this is not our second chance. This is not our hundredth second chance. Conservatively, this is our millionth second chance. And we believe in the God of second chances, second chances that we do not deserve because of our sin. God's love never tires, so you can rest in him. God's love is without wavering, because we always waver. Just as it was for Jonah, just as the Ninevites will learn, and just as you must know today. Point number one, God's love is without wavering. Point number two, God's love is intelligible. It is clear. It is simple. It is easy to understand. Verses three to five. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Again, not sure what it means that Nineveh is a three days journey, but according to the text, the second or third day doesn't even matter. In the first day, Jonah's message is heard and it spreads like wildfire. The message is clear, it is understood, and it spreads. And the message is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, there's debate as to what Jonah actually preached. Some people think he just said these words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And considering that this Jonah is in part of the minor prophets, the structure is very different than the other minor prophets. Wouldn't it make sense that uh, Jonah's sermon would be written in full, just like the oracles and sermons and prophecies of the other minor prophets? That's one side of the debate. 
Others believe that this is just a summary of what he preached. As a prophet, he more than had the capacity to say a lot in this, in this sermon, like he did in chapter 1, verse 9, when he spoke to the sailors. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Or in chapter 4, verse 2, how he quotes Exodus, For I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Or better yet, all of Jonah 2, where he quotes multiple psalms to express his heart of repentance. But regardless of whether Jonah preached five words or 5,000 words, the message was very clear. Nineveh, as they knew it today, would be destroyed. And this is an important point because people, we people, tend to complicate things. When you talk to non-believers about God, about his wrath to come and the salvation that he brings, they try to instate debate on the implications for humankind against the existence of God or whether morality is actually relative or not. They come up with whatever argument to detract from God's holiness, their wickedness, and their need for a savior which God provided for them. People just like to complicate things. For us Christians, we complicate speaking to the non-believers. We complicate the gospel and evangelism. What do I say? What should I do? When we know how simple the gospel is. We are sinners. God is perfect. He sent his son to die for us. And therefore, we get to benefit from that. We're also drawn to the pastors or sometimes even the personalities who have the hottest takes. Whether it's a new spin on a biblical text that is basically a leap from its intended meaning, or whether it's a focus on current events that have kind of something to do with the gospel, but not really. Whether it's giving heavy theological lessons in order for us to feel like we've upgraded as Christians, as if we're used to the gospel, and as if the gospel isn't enough to satisfy, and therefore we need something more novel for us to feel something. People just like to complicate things. But Jonah's message was enough. Because God wants to be known. In the context of eternity, there will be never, there will never be an end to how deep and how wide and how sweet the love of God really is. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. 10,000 years just pluming the depths of his love, learning his love more, unpacking that love, being surprised by that love, barely scratching the surface. But God distills that infinite love for us so that we might understand it and know him. He simplifies it that we might believe in him. And I'd argue that when God also makes something as complex as hell known to us in simple terms, it is a result of his love. See, God cannot ignore and must punish even the smallest of detractors who remain loyal to Satan, Satan who wants to overthrow God's kingdom. There's no debate there. Any sympathizer of Satan, and let's be honest, we're more than just sympathizers, we are loyal partakers, must be dealt with. But what's easier? Just wipe out mankind and be done with it? Or to send prophet after prophet, warning after warning, sign after sign, to tell you that destruction is coming. Destruction is coming. For the enemies of God, that time is running out. I'll remind you that before Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden tree, God warned man, Genesis 2.16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God instructs, God warns, and after they sin, even, we see his love in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Catch that? God doesn't stomp his way in, rolling up his sleeves, ready to discipline. God doesn't rush in angrily. God walks. He calls for them. And even as he casts his judgment, God delays his final punishment against them. See, Adam feels all the effects of death on that day, but he does not face death itself. While death enters the world, Adam and Eve continue to breathe. Because instead, God promises redemption for them. He promises a way out for them. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I'll remind you that God, in regretting the creation of man, he didn't immediately wipe off all of mankind. God chooses Noah to warn of the destruction to come and he preserves eight souls. I'll remind you that God sent plague after plague, warning after warning against Egypt before the crushing, before crushing the army of Pharaoh. I'll remind you that God destroyed Babylon only after warning its final king that his days are numbered. I'll remind you that God didn't destroy Nineveh, but sent Jonah first. And I'll remind you that you have insulted God through your thoughts, your speech, your jealousy, your anger. I'll remind you that you have cursed God with your actions through your immorality. And yet here you are, breathing living. I need you to know today that God has made his wrath known to you. And it is a simple message that God is a holy king and you have broken the laws of the holy king in his domain. You deserve the full penalty for your crimes and you can either die with your sins or turn from your sins and believe in the one who died for you that you might live. People say God is love. Therefore, hell cannot exist. But imagine we didn't know. Imagine he never told us. Our knowing about hell is not a right. It's a mercy. It's a grace. Because you love your sin. You love to hold on to your sins, your pride. And so if God didn't tell us about the consequences of continue to, continuing to enjoy our sins, we would never turn away. The message is clear and simple. And with this simple message, I'm not sure Jonah would have expected much fruit. He was sent to preach, and he believed that some would probably repent, but I just don't think that he expected that it would cause this much of a disruption, that it would reach the ears of the king, that 120,000 would be saved in a single day. God's telling Nineveh that they will be destroyed was an act of love. And what did the Ninevites do? They understood and they spread the message themselves through the rest of the city. Because when you hear and understand the love of God, the natural reaction is to cry out to God, but not just keep it to yourself, to call out to everyone else to tell them of their condition. See, Jonah, whether he preached those five words or 5,000 words, didn't do most of the work. It's the Ninevites who received the word that did most of the work. They're the ones that spread it. From the poor to the rich, the illiterate to the educated, from the liberal to the conservative, the Bible says the entire nation understood and they repented because God's love is intelligible. Point number three, God's love is neutralizing. 
It's disarming. It's overpowering. It was neutralizing for Jonah. Jonah chapter 1 introduced Jonah as a prideful prophet who relied on his own wisdom and strength. And chapter 2 was a process of breaking him down. God taking a tiller to the soil of Jonah's hardened heart and breaking it up to soften it. And now Jonah, having been constricted in the belly of a fish for three days and for three nights, has been vomited out onto the beach close to Nineveh. He is no longer the prideful prophet from chapter 1. Never mind the stench from marinating in the guts of a fish. Never mind his stained clothes. But emotionally, Jonah was in solitary confinement for three whole days without food or drink. Physically, Jonah was bound in the fish with no space and very little air. And then he's thrusted out. His lungs are gasping for air. He tries to move his fingers for the first time, using every muscle in his face to try to open his eyelids, only to immediately shut them back because of the sunlight burning his eyeballs after being in darkness for half a week. Jonah's been crushed physically, emotionally, spiritually drained. And he had to be brought to this point. Because otherwise, he'd still be sinning, despite a hurricane, despite life-threatening, despite the boat breaking apart, he was still inching toward hell with every fiber of his being. But now that he's been disciplined, he's come back. The other alternative was for Jonah to descend and abandon God forever. And so we see God's love has been neutralized, has, has neutralized. It's disarmed this prideful prophet. God's love is neutralizing to Jonah. But God's love is also neutralizing to the people of Nineveh. Starting from verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And just as with the sailors in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah starts to disappear from the narrative here completely. And the Bible is clear. This is because they believe God. The Ninevites believe God, not Jonah. It is the preacher's job to take the hand of the listener and place them in the hand of Jesus. But God is the one who opens the eyes of those who hear. It's God who disarms and neutralizes the heart. And this is important. Because even if man hears the truth of God, he is unable to accept it. He must be disarmed. There's a lot of things that need to be disarmed. But let's just consider three things that do have to be neutralized. The first is the external influences that surround us, right? On a daily basis, we are fed dead doctrines and ideas, all of which want to undermine God. They either minimize God or make sense of sin. It's our poison. And we feel, and we like what we are fed by the world. We don't want to be broken over our sin. And the reason we don't want to be broken over our sin is because we like it. The second thing that needs to be neutralized is our pride. So I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be a wisecrack. But in this room, statistically, there are three groups. People of average intelligence, people of above average, and people who are below average. But nobody will ever admit that they may be in the below average intelligence uh, category in this room. Because of all the things we are prideful about, 
how smart we think we are is probably at the top of the list. And that's why Paul warns against it in 1 Corinthians, knowledge puffeth up. And this pride will keep us from repenting. Pride blinds us from seeing ourselves as we truly are before a holy God. Another thing to be disarmed is our hearts. Our hearts, that is, according to Jeremiah 17:9, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The thing that deceives us more than anything in the world is our own hearts. Deep in our hearts, we know that we are deceitful, but we tend to ignore it and keep on deceiving anyway. <clears throat> so we have, uh, Nikki and I, my wife and I, have five beautiful children. Five beautiful but wretched sinners. And when we discipline them for their sins, we explain to them the righteousness of, God, righteousness of God and the authority of God and that sinning against God is far worse than obeying me. And one day, several years back, one of our children responds, well, I don't think God is real. And by the way, this kid was homeschooled, right? So he was sheltered. He, he, we controlled everything that was fed into him. And so there was nothing to really teach him to say that. But that's just the sinfulness of our hearts. Granted, he's just the most naturally logical of our kids without giving away his name, but his heart, this little boy's heart, this little boy's heart is just as wicked as yours and mine. God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and I am under his authority. But if I just delete God, then suddenly... I am not under his authority. His heart deceived him so that he could continue sinning. And this heart condition, like my son's, like yours, needs to be neutralized. The Ninevites did not wake up ready to hear this message. They woke up on a normal day. They loved whatever they loved. They were comfortable. But suddenly, the love of God came and neutralized them. They were immediately willing to give up all that they had, all their riches, their jobs, their friends, their houses, their reputation, their livelihood. They recognize that they are the enemies of God. They see their sin, and even if it's the last thing that they do on earth, even if they are unsuccessful, they'd rather die surrendering, surrendering to God than die continuing to reject him. Like the tax collector in Luke 18, unable to lift his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, head bowed, crying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like the psalmist who cries out, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Like Peter who responds, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. They suddenly saw how they stood before God, and they felt the weight of their guilt crushing them. Verses 6 through 9, the word reached the king of Nineveh, And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The way the king responds is not a political defense. It's a reaction against sin. Because while for those who believe in Jesus Christ, there are 10,000 years and no less days to learn more of God's love, 
For those who reject him, it's 10,000 years of burning in the eternal fires of hell and no less days when they first began. And the king understands this. Thomas Watson says that there is a desperation in repentance, quote, not because sin is sinful, but because it is painful, end quote. And I'm not, I'm not preaching fire and brimstone, but I am preaching God's love. Listen, this is a massive act of mercy by God against his enemies. There was no covenant with the Ninevites. There was no promise for them. But God doesn't just simplify his love for us to understand. He opens our, uh, our heart for us to believe his love. There was nothing in the hearts of the Ninevites that caused them to believe. They didn't plan it. And maybe you didn't plan on repenting. There are some things in your life you know are sinful, that you're hiding from most people in your life, that you're keeping a secret because you know how others would feel about it. Maybe it's not inherently sinful, or maybe it is, but you're justifying it. And it's become an idol regardless. And you know that if you were being completely honest, Jesus and that thing cannot truly coexist. I want you to know that there's never a plan to give that up. There's no proper goodbye you can send it. There's no final time of engagement with it before you come to God. No, God demands that you hate that sin, that you divorce yourself from that sin. And so don't resist what God is telling you through your conscience. Don't harden your heart to what is an act of God's love in your life. Repent. Turn away and cry out. Which leads us to our fourth and final point. God doesn't just leave you to wonder if he will save you or not because God's love is also sympathetic. Point number three, God's love is neutralizing. Point number four, God's love is sympathetic. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. God's love is sympathetic. It is compassionate. There were only 40 days before Nineveh would face its destruction. But the Ninevites Ninevites wasted no time. They tore their clothes and they mourned. Not only that, they knocked on doors. They shouted in the streets a message of repentance so that every soul in Nineveh turned from their evil ways and bowed before God. And in response, God did not watch indifferently. He had compassion, and he held back his wrath. But even if God held back his wrath on day one when they repented, the Ninevites probably didn't know. The reason they knew of the wrath to come was because Jonah told them. But there was no indication that Jonah told them that God accepted their repentance. They likely mourned and fasted and prayed for 40 straight days. And then on the 41st day, They wake up, they look around, and they realize that God was sympathetic to them. And God must have held back his wrath because their repentance was genuine. Jesus agrees, Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. But what does it mean that God relented? Does that mean God changed his mind? 
There are many examples in the Bible where God's wrath is impending, but he relents. He holds his wrath back. God promises in Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. At the same time, God himself declares on Mount Sinai that God would by no means clear the guilty. God needed to pay blood for blood. So how do we reconcile this? God does not contradict himself. Remember, God is not like us. God does not relent like us. The wrath that was due for Adam and Eve, for Noah's neighbors, for the Israelites, for the drunkard, the sexually immoral, the proud, the murderer, the liar, the pedophile, the violent, the criminal, for the Ninevites, for you, for me, God took that wrath and placed it somewhere else. And that somewhere else is Jesus. God sent his son to leave the glories of heaven in order to become like us so that he, while deserving no wrath, could stand in our place and take that wrath for us. Montgomery Boyce explains, quote, Our repentance from sin, assuming, assuming we do repent, is made possible only because God himself first repented of the evil by taking our judgment on himself. Jesus bore our judgment. End quote. Think about the repentance of the Ninevites. This is unhopeful brokenness over their sin. They don't know that God will save them. The Ninevites did not know this. The Ninevites said, who knows? But friend, today, you know. You know the love of God. Unlike the Ninevites, we see the loudest display of God's love for us sinners when he showed it on the cross. Through your sins, you testify to the profound love of God because Jesus has already taken on the wrath for the worst of sinners. Because Jesus did not face the wrath of God like the Ninevites, not knowing whether God would relent or not. He faced it knowing he would, in our flesh, face God's wrath in full. It was coming. But he also faced it knowing that by it, he would overcome sin and death and that the victory and triumph over sin and death would be ours. Romans 5.10 tells us, For while we, like the Ninevites, while we were enemies, we know that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You know. God promised that the Nineveh, the sinful, awful, wicked, proud Nineveh, would be destroyed. But that Nineveh, that proud Nineveh, was gone completely when Nineveh repented. This is the idea of a new creation. God threatens to destroy us, but salvation by the cross means that the old Brian, which God should destroy, is no more. But that there is a new Brian in that God has justified me and created me anew in the image of Jesus Christ, that I should no longer be an enemy of God, but a child of God, whom he shall not destroy through Jesus Christ. Charles Wesley once wrote, Depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear, me the chief of sinners spare? The answer is a resounding yes. Because we have a God whose love is compassionate, whose love is 
sympathetic. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. In church, we all pray for revival, don't we? Of course we want to see our neighborhood get saved. Of course we want the Holy Spirit to fall on New York City where Christ becomes exalted in every single subway stop. Where the bars on Bell Boulevard are empty and prayer meetings are filled and are spirited and vivacious. But I wonder, if revival comes, are we ready for it? If God were to grant us a revival today, this morning, here in this church where we just get on our knees unprompted to pray, are we ready for it? When all our sins rise to the surface and are exposed, do we truly love each other enough today that we are ready to bear one another's burdens? That we'd have Christians who are really mature and loving and kind and gentle enough to counsel others and labor with them through it, to truly pray with them and care for them. Would God make us a church that truly loves each other, not out of emotion, but out of pure, genuine love? Because I think if we expect the world to repent, the church, our church, needs to first adopt a culture of true, genuine repentance. And are we doing that today? Are we the city on a hill, the salt and the light? Because repentance, even if we try to make it seem like it, is not an issue for everybody else. It's an issue for all of us who need the love of God. Oh, God would, ma- oh, would God make us a church that is daily driven by the riches and the beauty of his gospel, of his love? Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a magnificent God We know how magnificent and wonderful is your love. God, this morning, would you allow your love to transform us? Would we find rest and peace in your love for those who have understood and applied your love through the death of your son, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection? And for those who have no peace with you, would they learn of your love and the impending wrath to come that it has been made known to them so that they may turn from their ways and you might be glorified by bringing souls to you. In your son's holy name and precious name we pray, amen.